0: So it's the last Sunday of, the, uh, of 2019, we're on the front porch of 2020, here we go. Who would have believed for all of us who remember Y2K when we thought the world was ending, here we are 20 years later ready to, on the brink of another decade. So on this day, as we look forward to this next year, this next decade, what are you longing for? What's, what's, in, what's your deepest hope and dream? this next year? What's the one thing in your life that you said, if that would change, then life would make sense? Uh, Life would have meaning. That That would deal with all of my problems. You know, Christmas reveals something about longings. You know, for a lot of young people, Christmas is full of expectation and presents and decorations that go up and excitement, all for the December 25th to come and the presents to be opened and the wrapping paper to be there. Then for December 26th to come and go, time to burn the tree. There's a sense of, there's a, a hope of longing, there's an expectation that's there, but then there's also a sense where it's like, is that really it? You know, there's nothing quite like celebrate. we just had a video with uh, or that celebrated newborns in our church family. There's nothing quite like Christmas through a newborn's eyes. Um, now, they have no idea. None of those kids had any idea what was going on this year. But my uh, two and five year old, they certainly were excited about Christmas this year. They had every kind of expectation, every kind of hope and dream was right at their fingertips. They're excited. Something about a new year and Christmas time that gets us excited about new longings and expectations. But if we're honest, there's also a, a flip side to the longings of Christmas. There's something about Christmas and these longings that we have at this time of year that also remind us things aren't as they should be. And the best people to teach us this are the ones with the grayest hair and the most wrinkles on their face. Because many of you who are older recognize the bitterness of life. There's great joy, but there's also deep sorrow. You know, some of, the, some of the, you who are older You know, you deal with losing friends on a regular basis. You're more likely to go to a funeral than a birthday party. You watch as siblings pass away. Some of you who are caring for aging parents are kind of recognizing that now you're the patriarch. You're the matriarch. You're the oldest of your family now. There's a certain somberness and seriousness that comes over when we begin to consider, you know, what is... How is my life counting? We're not looking so much into the the forward thinking, longings, and expectations. We're looking more in the rearview mirror going, did my life make a difference? What will my family remember about me? You know, in those years, for those of you who had a, a family member in that video who passed away this year, I remember those years. Those first years without that special someone, it's as if someone cut the sugar content and the cookies in half. They just don't taste the same. The songs that year just don't quite have the same ring or joy to them as they were supposed to. There's actually churches around the country that are beginning to host blue Christmas services after the famous Elvis Christmas song. They host these services for people who feel, who resonate a little bit more with the somberness or the lack of uh, fulfillment this time of year than the, the joy or the happiness they're supposed to feel. Christmas is, in reality, bittersweet. But we often spend so much time talking about the Christmas story through the lens of the younger, through the the virgin, through the young honorable man, through the baby in the manger. We don't often get to see an older perspective of Christmas. Someone who's seen a thing thing or two and can teach us a thing or two because they've been around. Well, today we get to see Christmas to the eyes of a couple of elderly folks. Two older saints who see Jesus changes their lives even as they age and look forward to being with God himself. Today our passage is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 38. If you don't have a Bible, one of our hosts would gladly put one in your hands. If you don't have a Bible, it's a gift to you. If you do have one and just forgot it at home, just leave it at the door or in your seat on your way out, you can find this passage on page 832 in your Bible. If you're new to looking at a Bible, the big numbers on the page are chapter numbers and the small numbers are verse numbers. So we're in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. Um, the figures in our, uh, in our Christmas scene today aren't really part of our nativity. We don't have any uh, figurines to represent this man named Simeon and this lady named Anna, but we're going to see Christmas through, through their eyes. The scene takes place in Jerusalem not in Bethlehem. It's about a month after Jesus was born. So if you would stand as Joel uh, Zook, our pastoral resident, reads for us this text. He's reading from the English Standard Version, so maybe a little bit different than the NIVs which are provided. But listen along as Joel reads.
1: We'll start in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping, and fasting, uh, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem.
0: Thanks, you may be seated. <clears throat> so this passage gives us just a small glimpse into the early life of Jesus outside of Bethlehem. We'll focus first on the setting of Joseph and Mary, and then we'll spend the bulk of our time concentrating on the expectations and the responses of our two older characters in the story, Simeon and Anna. We'll find that Jesus was the fulfillment of their deepest hopes and longings. And as we find that was true for them, we'll also find that it's true for us. Jesus is the fulfillment of our deepest hopes and longings. First, the setting. These first several verses provide just really the context for the passage. We know from previous messages about the righteousness and integrity of Joseph and Mary. These were young people who lived honorable lives before the Lord, so it makes sense that we see them obediently following the law after the birth of Jesus. They came to Jerusalem for two reasons. The first was purification, and the second was dedication. Verse 22 says, "...when the time came for their purification, they went up to Jerusalem." In Leviticus chapter 12, we find a law that discusses the process of how one is purified after birth. About a month after the child was born, they were to take a lamb up to Jerusalem and sacrifice uh, there so that atonement could be made. There were, however, stipulations within the law that if one could not afford a lamb, they could uh, have two turtle doves or two pigeons. And this is the sacrifice that we see Joseph and Mary presented. It reveals something about them. It reveals that they were of simple, uh, poor, potentially, means. Another reason they went to Jerusalem is for dedication. They go to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. In Exodus chapter 13, we find in the Exodus story, after the Israelites are taken out of Egypt, remember the, the Passover, was because the judgment was coming on the firstborn of all the land. The firstborn children of all the land was going to die unless they had put the the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorposts so that God would pass over that house. So the firstborn was saved because the Passover lamb had taken all the judgment, all the sacrifice that was coming to them. So then it was a practice within Israel to dedicate your firstborn to the Lord as a reminder of His gracious saving act. They were Joseph and Mary were formally recognizing that Jesus was not theirs, and that He would be lived for God and God's purposes alone. So all this really just provides the context and setting for uh, the primary aspects of our passage. But before we move too quickly, we need to make just two observations about Joseph and Mary. First, their piety, and secondly, their poverty—piety and poverty. Mary and Joseph were careful to obey all that the Lord required. Listen, they did not allow their circumstances to deter their obedience. They did not allow their circumstances to deter their obedience. Anyone who's traveled with a one-month-old baby can know whether you're going five miles or 500 miles, that could be an interesting uh, test of patience. And I don't know how your kids were when they got in the car. We had one who fell asleep right away. The other one, on the other hand, not so much, and uh, it it just is a magical, we made it anywhere. Um, I'll let you decide which of my kids that was the case for. Anyways, this was a challenging thing, yet they did not allow their circumstances to distract their obedience, and we would be wise, brothers and sisters, to heed their example. Let me ask, it'd be impossible to go through every scenario that we have faced this year as a church, but in the last year, have you used any of your circumstances as an excuse for a lack of pursuit of God or unrighteousness? Have you used any of your circumstances as an excuse? Maybe just think about your devotional time or time of prayer. You ever just said, you know, I'm, I'm not really a morning person. What about coming to church just on a faithful, regular basis? Is it, you know, we just have a really hard time getting there. What about participation in a group, a community of believers smaller than this room who know you well, who hold you accountable, that you speak into and encourage one another to walk with Christ? It just doesn't fit in my schedule. What circumstances have you used to be an excuse for disobedience or lack of pursuit of God? Now let's be clear, we don't obey to get God. God changes our hearts through the gospel so that our obedience is no longer to earn salvation. It's in light because we've received salvation. That's, a, that's an important point that we need to clarify. Yet, if we recognize that Jesus is the true treasure of our hearts, it only makes sense that we would obey him and pursue him in righteousness. Joseph and Mary are examples of piety. Piety. The second observation we need to make is their poverty. Their poverty. Now, we don't exactly know how close to the poverty line they were. Joseph had a, a trade, so it's possible that they lived a pretty normal human existence. Um, obviously, not much around the margin for, for things, uh, but could provide basic needs. May, so maybe they lived a normal life, or maybe they were on the poorer side of things. But notice that Joseph and Mary did not allow their poverty... To deter their obedience either they did not allow their poverty to deter their obedience and there's two sides of this coin that we really need to reflect on if you're one who struggles financially if you're one in a difficult financial position let me encourage you to continue to trust god in that and to not allow those circumstances to be the reason for unrighteousness or lack of pursuit of god the other side of the coin is for those of us who are more wealthy Who have means? Let me ask you this question. Let's imagine for a second, you're making the same sacrifice that Joseph and Mary are making, but you can afford a lamb. Would you be tempted to see them, you know, maybe in the corner? They got their two turtle doves in their hands. You kind of go, hmm, just two turtle doves, eh? You're leading this nice white lamb along with you. Would you allow your, your wealthy estate to be a reason for disdain or suspicion on those who are less off financially? See, we as wealthy people as well should not allow our uh, assumed um, blessedness to be a reason for judgment. Wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. As one pastor has said, maybe God would even place us in a state of poverty as a grace that saves us when riches would destroy us. Jesus was born to financially poor, but spiritually rich people. The worst fear that you and I could ever have is for the opposite to be true. Let's be spiritually rich people more than what we're known for in our bank account. Okay, that's all introduction, so now the sermon can officially begin. We see now, moving forward with Simeon and Anna. We're looking at the dawning of their expectations. We'll focus now the rest of our time on them. The passage doesn't just give us mere biographical information, but it shows us the underlying motivations of their hearts, their concerns and their lives. So in the dawning of their expectations, we first see the godly character of Simeon and Anna. They exemplify the beauty of aging and godliness. They exemplify the beauty of aging and godliness. Simeon's description is in verse uh, 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed by the, to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon was a righteous and devout man, which means he was a God-fear. He's not described as a priest or someone of high position. He has no inroads here with, within what he does. Daryl Bach summarizes him well. He says, What what is revealed about Simeon is neither his vocation nor his age, but his spiritual condition. He was a devout believer in God. Simeon is simple, faithful, and godly. Now look at Anna's description in verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Anna is also devout and godly. We learn more about her character, her background. We see who her father was, what tribe she comes from. She was advanced in years. She had been widowed, Uh, seven years into marriage, and she's at least 84 here, so she spent at least 60 years widowed. It's a long time. Being a widow in our day and age is a difficult endeavor um, in and of itself. But in the first century, that was an especially challenging way to live. But she did not spend those years twiddling her thumbs and frustrated. No, she worshiped. She was in the the temple day and night fasting and in prayer. She was godly. Let me ask this question. How have you aged in godliness this year? All of us are a year older, but has our love for Jesus grown in this year? Has your affection for him grown? Grown? Has your desire to reach out to the lost grown because of your love for what Christ has done for you? Or, are you? or have you only gotten more frustrated at the world around you? See, Simeon and Anna may have had every reason to be frustrated. Their, their world was governed by an outside ruler. They did not support. They did not elect uh, who knows what health care costs were doing um, in their day and age, and the young people were uh, forgetting the traditions and moving on to their own new way of doing everything. They, they had a reason to shake their fist at society around them, but they didn't. They aged in godliness. You know, I'm extremely thankful for the Simeons and the Annas that are among us in our church. Those who have been here for decades, those who have who are full of who are good grace, who have grown in their joy and affection for Christ, who have helped build this church and reach out to the lost. Who, who as we come in, they, they give in to the next generation, not looking just simply to shake their fist at them. Younger people, for, for those of us who are looking at those who are older, let's let's attach ourselves to those who have who can teach us a few things. But what it means to walk with Christ in the midst of suffering, what it means to, to serve faithfully week after week. Let's not disdain older people as, as though they're the problem. Let's be thankful for the people like Lester Pfeiffer, 99 years old, who has poured out his life for the sake of the gospel. I remember one time interacting with, with Lester in our, the kitchen area in our office. And he was in his mid-90s already uh, at this time, and he was still teaching Bible studies and stuff. And I remember asking him, you know, are you just simply repeating old stuff that you've done? Oh, no. This is all new. He, He had stayed faithful to the cause. He had stayed faithful. And those of you who are older saints, friends, continue to persevere in Christ. Age and godliness, not frustration. I'm so thankful for the number of you who encourage me in that. But that's not true of every older person. In preaching this passage, one pastor sought to walk a close line between encouraging older people in his congregation and admonishing them. He said this, The Christian heart should be a grateful heart. And as much as I want to encourage older saints, I also want to provide a respectful word of admonishment. Sometimes age has a way of making people more bitter rather than thankful. There are churches filled with older saints, but they're not like Anna. They're hard. Their faces are shriveled in peevishness and unkindness. So, my encouragement is this don't let that be you and me. As we age, let us become more expert in giving God thanks for the thousands of days of fresh mercy that He has shown us. If you're older, and tempted to be frustrated at the younger people sitting next to you, remember that they're the future of this church. Remember that the gospel that met you has met them and that their charge was taking that gospel to places you will never go. That could be next year or 2030 or 2050. Brothers and sisters, one of the benefits of being part of a multi-generational church is that we get to encourage one another, learn from each other, And walk with Christ together. Let's age well in godliness. And one way to do that is to see another aspect of Simeon and Anna. They waited for God with a God-centered patience. They waited with a God-centered patience. Verse 25 says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And verse 38 tells us that Anna began to speak to those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And it's safe to assume that she would have been among those who were waiting as well. They're both waiting, and waiting for the consolation of Israel and the redemption of Jerusalem are essentially two ways of saying the same thing. The word consolation means comfort, and the word uh, for redemption really is about release or ransom. There was a Jewish hope and expectation that God was going to send the one who would renew all things, who would restore the nation, who would renew the world, and they were waiting for this hope. These guys were on the edge of their seats knowing that God was still going to provide the one who would answer all their deepest longings, all their deepest hopes. Passages from the book of Isaiah put words to their feelings here. Isaiah 40 verse 1 says, "'Comfort, comfort my people,' says your God." Isaiah 49, verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Chapter 51, verse 3, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Redemption, thanksgiving, and the voice of song. See, they desired comfort in the midst of their brokenness. They desired for the compassion of the Lord to come down so that the wilderness, the places that that drew thistles and thorns would be renewed like the Garden of Eden and that their own souls would be comforted because God was providing the answer. They longed for it. They longed for consolation. Let me ask again, what are you longing for? in this new year? What's the one thing about your life right now that you said, you know, if that changed, then life would make sense? If I had that, then I would have it all. Just a little bit more money, just a little bit more security, just a little bit better relationships, and then it would all make sense. See, one of the differences between someone who goes through life getting sweeter rather than bitter is a sense of deep-seated hope. Hope for the future. Tim Keller says that we are hope-based creatures, and what he's talking about is not merely a a general optimism or glass-half-full kind of mentality. There's actually studies that show that kind of mentality doesn't really help us at all. It's something that goes far deeper into our being that, that, that sees the future as a hopeful thing that says there's something waiting for me there. And one of the ways that is what's most important, what our deepest longings actually are, one of the ways those are revealed is on our deathbed in the midst of suffering. You know, it's amazing what we cling to when it seems like everything is down. Just the slightest glimpse of hope can give us something. And if you're not a believer here today, I'm really grateful that you're here. It it honors your friend who invited you. It honors us who receive you, that you would come and, and spend a Sunday morning with us. We're grateful that you're here. But I would strongly urge you to consider that question. What is it when the chips are down, when you would be facing your worst, what is it that you would cling to for fulfillment, for hope? See, Simeon and Anna were hopeful people. They had a realistic sense of the world. They knew it wasn't as it was supposed to be. They also knew they weren't as they were supposed to be, that there was something even wrong with them. They were looking for something to make them right and the world right. They were looking for the one, the Messiah, the Redeemer, who was come from God to set all things right again. As Sally Lloyd-Jones has said in her children's book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, says they were looking for the one who was going to make everything sad come untrue. They were looking for the one who who would bring God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what they were expecting. That's what they wanted. And see, there's, there's something that Simeon knew. There's a revelation that he had that helped him here. Verse 26 says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, that is, the Lord's Messiah, the promised one. At some point in his life, we don't know when, but Simeon was told, You are going to see this one who will bring renewal to the whole earth. You are going to see this one before you die. He waited patiently. You know, Simeon was a a righteous and devout man. can only imagine him being in the the temple on a regular basis. Imagine him for a second, this older fella, maybe hobbling up those steps. Let's say some young boys ran up beside him. Young couple, cradling their newborn, came to the temple. I wonder if Simeon ever wondered, could could it be him? Maybe, maybe, Maybe that's him. Maybe? No. But then one day, Simeon is led by the Spirit into the temple. And he sees Joseph and Mary with their one month old baby in their arms. And he knows that's him. He goes over to that couple, he takes that little baby in his arms. And as he stares face to face with that little child, he knows that his hopes and longings and expectations have been met and fulfilled in this little child. Anyone who's cradled a newborn, your own kid, a grandkid, a niece or nephew, there's a sense of longing and expectation that takes place as you hold that little one. What will this kid be when they grow up? What might they do? What what might they look like? What, What might they treasure? What might they accomplish? Simeon didn't have to wonder that at all. He knew this one, the one he was holding in his arms, was the Savior of the world. He was the one who had come to restore and renew all things. He was the fulfillment. He was the hope. This one, Jesus. And that's when he says, Lord, you're letting your spirit your, your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus was the fulfillment of his deepest hopes and longings. And Simeon's prophecy and Anna's example then gives us three theological truths to the doctrine of Christmas. As we close this Christmas series, Simeon reveals something about the mission and identity of Jesus. Verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your your servant depart in peace according to your word. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Israel. The first truth of the doctrine of Christmas that Simeon tells us is that Christmas tells us that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ alone. I recently saw a video of Pastor David Platt on the Gospel Coalition website uh, in a series called One Minute Apologetics. It'd be worth your time looking those up sometime. But it's pastors and theologians taking 60 seconds to answer some kind of truth about Christianity. And... Platt tells a story about when he was in a different country and he was sitting around with, with, uh, with two guys, one from each, each from different faiths, and they were having this spiritual discussion. And both of them were trying to convince Platt that their, their beliefs were pretty much the same, just with some subtle differences. And uh, David steps back and he goes, okay, I, I see what you guys are trying to say. I think it's as if you guys imagine God is on top of a mountain And the three of us are trying to make our way up to him, and we're simply just taking different routes, but we eventually reach uh, the same God. And they said, ah, precisely. Now, Now you understand. And he says, well, what if I told you that God didn't wait for us to meander up the mountain? What if God came down to us? Brothers and sisters, in the doctrine of Christmas... God comes down to us. He's not waiting for us to search and claw our way up the mountain. He comes in the flesh so that we can say with Simeon, my eyes have seen your salvation because they've seen Jesus. If you've not cradled Christ in your arms, you've cradled nothing of hope in future fulfillment. You've created nothing that can give you eternal sense of hope. But if you've cradled Christ, brothers and sisters, we have hope, and fulfillment in our arms. Simeon saw Jesus, therefore he saw salvation. And if you're searching to be saved in any other way outside of Christ, you do not have salvation. Salvation can be found in no one else than Jesus. And Simeon tells us that. Simeon also tells us another important aspect of the doctrine of Christmas He says that Christmas is for everyone. He says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people, Israel. This would have been a radical shift for Simeon, considering the expectation that was there. Many people thought the Messiah was only coming for the Jews. But no, Simeon knows that this Messiah, this treasured one, he's coming for all the peoples, he's coming for everybody. Every tribe, language, and tongue, this Messiah is coming for. See, I don't know about you guys, but we spent Christmas Day pretty much locked down, just our family, and that, that can be fine. But at the heart of Christmas is not about cinnamon rolls, pajamas, and presents under the tree. The heart of Christmas is the nations on every corner of the globe hearing and responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that He alone is the way to be saved. Christmas is for the nations, Missions is at the heart of Christmas. Not only is the fulfillment of our deepest longings and hopes, he's the fulfillment of every person on the planet. Their hopes, their longings can only be met in him. Simeon says all these glorious things. And Mary and Joseph look back at him with wonder. They marvel at what he has to say. Wow, look at, hear, did you hear that? That's, a, that's, a, that's amazing. But Simeon's not done. I imagine his, his face got a little bit more serious. Not sad, but somber. His tone maybe dropped from a, a higher pitch to a more of a, a serious, quieter one-to-one. He looks at Mary, and he says, "That this child is appointed for the rise and fall of many in Israel, and a sword will pierce your soul. And the thoughts of many will be revealed." See, Simeon knew something. He knew that Mary would not just cradle her baby boy in her arms. Lie him in a manger. She knew that Mary would see her son nailed to a cross, buried in a tomb. I'm sure Mary wept tears of joy upon the birth of Jesus, but Simeon says she would weep tears of sorrow because she'd be one of those mothers who'd bury a child. But, brothers and sisters, Since Mary wept tears of sorrow, you and I can weep tears of joy. Since Christ lived for us and died for us, all who trust in Him can find fulfillment in new life. That's a hope that the world cannot take away from you. That's a hope that's not up for election. That's a hope that we don't have to take back to the store. We can take it, we can receive it, and we can cling to Christ. Because he paid it all. And the example of Anna then tells us for those who have received that good news, what we're supposed to do with it. The doctrine of Christmas, the doctrine of Christ, is meant to be proclaimed. She comes in the temple at that hour as well, and she gives thanks to God. It begins to speak to all those who are awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, in 2020, who will you be bold enough to talk about Jesus with? Will you just get through the awkwardness and say something? Maybe one way to do it in this new year is just, you're at the store, you're at the barbershop, you're talking with someone, you just say, hey, how, did, how was Christmas this year? How'd it go? Did you, did, you do, did you go to Christmas Eve service or anything like that? Well, oh, you did. Tell me about that. Why, why was that? Would you ever come with me maybe next year? What, what, is it, what does Christmas really mean to you? Guys, the gospel can be awkward to talk about, but it's the only way people can be saved. And if we're not willing to be awkward with somebody about the good news, then there's no way for them to get it. We've got to tell, it you know, on the mountain, over the hill and everywhere, that Jesus' salvation, fulfillment of their longing has been born. That's the good news Christmas. So what are you longing for? What's your deepest hope and dream? What are you going to cling to when the chips are down? What What new reality might you face in 2020 where the treasure and the fulfillment of Jesus alone is going to be what carries you through? Mere optimism will not cut it. Self help and most of the things you see at the bookstore are not going to get you through the tragedy and the reality that is this life and world. And if your Facebook post doesn't reveal a sense of hope and treasure in Jesus, you're miscommunicating the gospel. Where's your hope? What are you cradling to give you meaning and significance? A bank account? Your own family that might let you down? A job that could be gone tomorrow? An election? Brothers and sisters, we've been given the greatest fulfillment of all of our longings, all of our expectations in the person of Christ. And people like Simeon and Anna, those of you in this congregation can teach us what does it mean to trust in Him, to treasure Him above all else so that all of my life I see that Christ is the fulfillment of my deepest hopes and dreams. That's the kind of truth we can live with. And that's the kind of truth we can die with. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you. Lord, Is the one we know is the true fulfillment. The one who gives us all the significance we could ever ask for. The one who teaches us even through hardship to treasure you more. And God, I pray that for Grace Polaris Church, that we would be hopeful people, excited people, expected people who wait for you. And we use our time that you've given us on this earth for your glory and purposes. We pray that 2020 would be a year of hope for us, a year of treasure for us, a year where we grow deeper in our affection for you and our, our love for the lost and our desire to share. Make us bold people because you have so changed us. Fill us with the awe of your glory as we behold you face to face. In your name, amen.